dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. The one who rules by fear will also fall by fear. This saying was never so true as in the life of King Saul. In this fourth and final episode in our commentary on Saul as an anti-leader, we see the end of his life. He ends his life in the same way he led it, fearful, controlling, and inconsistent. Saul's life is a wonderful pattern for us to avoid. He shows us that the temptation to control ends in folly. All right, so we're here to finish our study on King Saul, this amazing anti-leader. So he's a type for us of what to avoid in our leadership. So we're here to find out how to be God's leaders, how to lead our people, our organizations in a godly way. And we know the challenges that can come are so multiple there. They can come from the outside in terms of threats. They can come from the inside in terms of incompetence. They can come from the outside of us in terms of different things that can happen within the organization and even from our own inside, our insecurities, our failures, all of the different ways that we are imperfect. And with all of that, you could almost say, why are we even trying to lead anyway, right? It would just be so much easier if we would just give up and not even try. And that temptation can overwhelm us. It's even overwhelmed some of the saints. I'm thinking of St. John Vianney, who's the patron saint of Catholic priests. I mean, he's an amazing saint. He would do all these heroic things, praying for his people and, and, you know, fight with the devil at night. And there's all kinds of incredibly saintly things that he did. But two different times in his service as a priest, he tried to run away, literally run away. He packed his bags and he took off from his rectory. <laughs> he wanted to join the monastery where he could live a peaceful existence, glorifying God by praying and not have to deal with all of the anxieties that were coming his way. He had intrigue from the parishioners, people that didn't believe him, people that put a hard time against him. He had intrigue from his fellow priests, priests who were jealous of him, priests that tried to stop him. And he was like, if only I could just go and be a monk, I could just glorify God and give up on this service. And both times, God stopped him and brought him back to the post where God had assigned him. Meaning that it's fine to be a monk if you're called to be a monk. But when you're called to be a priest, you can't run away from that and think that you can somehow please God in the same way. It's the same thing when you're a parent. It's the same thing when you have a project that you're trying to do. Everything would become so easy if only you stopped trying. And frankly, isn't this something that we're seeing in our culture today in America? As you see, you know, small businesses folding, entrepreneurship declining, the right for private property seeming to be, you know, losing interest as people go for guaranteed security, guaranteed by whatever you know, type of power they want, and in exchange for you know, basically their service. 
If you become the servant of someone and give up your freedom, you'll live in relative comfort. That's the promise that seems to be given in so many different quarters and people seem to be swallowing it. Well, we all know where that will end up. It'll end up in a bad way. This is not God's plan for humanity. God's plan for humanity is that by the sweat of your brow, you shall live working for our living and therefore with the right to private property being assured by the the very dignity of the work that we perform. That's the Catholic Church's teaching. Private property is something that is inalienable because it's the fruit of the labor of a person. And yes, a person should be able to live based upon that labor. So you can't just go to any economic system here and expect the same results. You can't have though, at the same time, that type of freedom and absolute control. If you try to control freedom, absolutely, you, you might get ease, but you'll lose freedom. Freedom is never easy. And achieving things is never easy. There's a price to pay for greatness. And Christ calls you to pay that price because he's calling you to greatness. And, and it's just like, it's just funny that today we're like, well, I just, I don't want the pain. So I mean, I'm going to forsake the glory and I'm going to forsake the success because I really want to avoid pain more than anything else. It's just, guys, like this is not the culture that, that beats the world. This is not the culture that Christ came to give to his church. And it's not the culture that ends up being, you know, the, the culture of the saints. Saints are not people who simply say to themselves, I don't care. The moment you say, I don't care what happens in the world, I don't care what happens in my organization, I don't care what happens in my family, is the moment that you step outside of the charity and the love that God has commanded you to have for those very same things. If I love my people and I love my world and I love my family, then I determine to fight for them. You know, it's like love, in other words, embraces struggle. Ease avoids it. And you're not here for comfort and you're not here for ease. You are here for greatness because that's the call that Christ has placed upon us and the life that he has laid out ahead of us, which means your leadership, which is obviously at times a source of pain, is actually an incredible gift, both to you so you can incarnate your love and to the world so that the world can be loved by God through you. And you are a beautiful gift, which is why I'm here, St. John Institute, to give you that support in the name of the church and to help you to make it. We need you out there, folks. You're doing a great job. So let's go ahead and start with a prayer and we're gonna then kick off Saul, the end of the life of Saul. And I wanna look at the end of his life because it's an incredible thing to see where all of this control and all of this fear that Saul has cultivated his whole life brings him. And hopefully it'll help us to avoid doing the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear God, we ask you to open your word for us today. May we feed upon the truth found in your holy scriptures. May it inspire us to dare great things for you and to not be afraid to let you have control of our lives. We make this prayer through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're at the end of the life. We're skipping a whole section here because it goes as he chases David all over Tarnation, you know, basically in the 20s of 1 Samuel. And we get to 1 Samuel 28, 
and we see the undoing. Remember what Saul's weakness is. It's the same weakness that a lot of us suffer from. It's the weakness of saying, I need to control my life in an absolute way. All of us need to control things. Control is, is, is concomitant with leadership. The reason why you're a leader is because you have control. And with control comes responsibility. It's the two go hand in hand. We all get that. But at the same time, if you try to control things absolutely, you end up destroying yourself, destroying your organization. And in the name of trying to preserve it, you actually undo it. And that's what, why Saul is a great anti-leader to study. He had leadership. He was a bold leader. He was a generous leader. He tried to serve God, do what he was supposed to do. But he did it as if he himself were God. And when God said no, or when God said do something, like go ahead and, and wipe out the Amechalites, Saul actually uh, said the opposite. And this is what got him in trouble. He disobeyed God, dictated to God what he was going to do. And so in 1 Samuel 15, God removed the kingdom from him and gave it to another who would do his will, namely David. And Saul never got over that. And so Saul clings to his kingship. And every time God tries to move him or have him do something, Saul reacts violently. And so now Saul, it comes to the end of his life. And he'll finish his life as he lived it in control all the way to the end. But that control ends up drowning him in his own fate. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. All right, turn with me then to 1 Samuel chapter 28. And here we see, you know, the King, King Saul, you know, as they say in French, tout craché, you know what I mean? At his worst, right? It says, about that time, the Philistines mustered their armies for another war with Israel. Meanwhile, Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him, right? So Saul, and Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. The Philistines set up their camp at Shunem, and Saul gathered all the army of Israel and camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. He asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or by sacred lots or by the prophets. Now, this is a situation I think a lot of us find ourselves in, right? You're in charge of the army, and the enemy arrays itself for battle in front of you. This could be uh, a difficult position to fill, a budget gap, uh, something that happens in the world on the outside, and suddenly you find yourself with insurmountable odds. Well, what, what's the natural response to that? Fear. Fear is the passion that grips a soul when uh, a threat is present. Right? When a threat is present, we react with fear. And so Saul does a natural thing here. He becomes frantic with fear. Well, that, that can happen if you let it. But there's another response that can happen. So why is he frantic with fear? Because all he's looking at is the threat. 
I want to say that this is also a tactic of the enemy uh, in the spiritual realm. And I want to remind you of Saul Alinsky, who is no, no one I endorse. He's actually someone I consider as an anti-leader. But Saul Alinsky has a, a, a rule for radicals that's very true. His very first rule says, your enemy only has as much power as you think he has. Or you could invert that and say, you only have as much power as your enemy thinks that you have. In other words, power is bequeathed upon an aggressor by the victim. And if I, who am smaller or am being attacked, being if I have to defend against an attacker, I'll defend all the greater, the less that I attribute power to them. So if Saul, instead of looking at all of the armies of the Philistines, if he looked at them and said, instead of they could, they're going to kill me because they're so big. What if he said, God is with us and I'm the king of his armies and God has already slayed the Philistine and he'll slay these people too. And we're going to ride out in the battle. They could win because God, in fact, encourages and even commands that kind of courage. But when Saul decides that he's going to run instead, it becomes frantic with fear. He actually loses control and he loses his ability to fight because he's inside already surrendered to the enemy. I know that you face difficult things. I know that some of you listening right now are looking at, 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 the, at your life and at the situations in front of you and are absolutely terrified. I agree that when you're walking on water, <laughs> wind and waves can be really scary things. It's, uh, wind and waves are, are already scary when you're in a boat. But when you're walking on water and you actually can fail, I mean, the wind and the waves are real deals and they can grip your heart with fear. This is where being God's leader and placing your leadership in God's hands becomes so incredibly powerful because God is stronger than anything else. And he who bids you to wait, walk on the wind and the waves and to take the risks of your life and to get out of the security of the boat and like Peter, walk on water, like Jesus, walk on water, well, he's going to sustain you. Why would Saul for a moment think that the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God's people could overcome God's people? It's because he's no longer rooting himself in God and in the hope and in the courage that comes from God. And some of you looking at, you're looking at your medical conditions. You're looking at your, your, your future of your life dwindling as you get older. You're looking at your family that's got this trans. You got all kinds of problems around you. Go to God. Base yourself in God. And you'll find the courage that God is with you always. Saul evidently forgot that. He forgot that God was with him. And so instead of trusting in God, even when he doesn't get the answers that he's looking for, he goes and consults a medium. So he goes, a sorceress. He goes and finds a magic answer. Now, remember, this is really dangerous stuff. You're not allowed to do this. Don't even try, uh, no matter what. It's just, it's forbidden. It's in the catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a mortal sin. You may not do this kind of thing because you're consulting with demons. And here in the Bible, you got an example of this. Saul goes and he finds this medium. Now, what's amazing is that he's lying. So here is the king, the great king of Israel, so mighty and powerful that he's trying to kill his enemies and wage war. And yet he disguises himself, verse 8, by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. And he goes to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. 
So he's hiding from other people's view by going at night. And then he's hiding from the lady by, by not showing that he's the king. He's disguising himself. Why? Because he's in fear. It's amazing. He's not only in fear of his enemies, he's even in fear of his own people. Right? Why? Because he's breaking his own law. So here you just see a mass of contradictions. And this is what makes him an anti-leader. He has all of the trappings of power and all the trappings of, of authority. But in fact, he's not upholding his own laws, so he's self-contradictory. He's hiding from the viewpoint, of, from the view in the vision of his own people. And he's ashamed of his own actions as he should be. And even so, he continues to do them. Always look for contradiction in leadership and in power as a sign of its impending denouement. The sign of a tyrant's end is his contradiction of the premises of his own rule. And this is exactly what Saul does. And so he goes and conjures up the spirit of Samuel. Now, again, like look at another one of these signs of Saul's own tepidity and, and coward. He goes and he tries to summon the one person who made him king to begin with. He won't let go of his childlike fascination with Samuel. I think if you're looking at the, the psychological analysis of King Saul, you see a, a guy who never matured. And he calls up his spiritual father, Samuel, so to speak. And he says, the Philistines are at war with me and God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. Isn't that, I mean, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. And yet we are pathetic when control and desire for control dominates us. Because in the end, none of us have all that it takes to thrive and survive and to do well all of us in the end will lose control over our life at one point when we die. The idea of a maniacal control based upon fear is actually the source of our own undoing. And here it's the source of the undoing of King Saul. He's like a little child in the middle of the night contradicting his own law and begging Samuel, tell me what to do. Fear, in other words, has taken his dignity and has robbed him of his manhood. And that same fear will strip him of his authority in the end and even his life. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www. Saint-John-Leadership-Network.org/member and join for free today. And so we come to the end of the life of King Saul. First Samuel chapter thirty-one: The Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. What a sad, sad statement that is. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy attacks and the men of Israel flee. Now, you know, you almost ask like, it's almost a foregone conclusion that they would flee because they've already fled in their hearts before the enemy even attacked. All right? Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. There's a price to pay, in other words, for cowardice. And it's the loss of life of your own troops. The Philistines closed in on Saul and on his sons and they killed three of his sons. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishia. Now that's an amazing thing. Remember, Jonathan is our hero 
throughout the book the first Samuel. He's the one who saves David's life. He's a really good guy. And yet he dies in the battle. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. So now Saul's got arrows sticking out of him. There, and, you know, this is precluding, of course, that they would close in and chop off his head. And so Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take the sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. Now, isn't that amazing? Saul, even at his end, is concerned with how the other people will look at him. This is, again, it's the, the fundamental flaws in Saul are, are so personal and so deep that they, because he doesn't control them by virtue, they end up going throughout all of his kingship and his leadership and destroying his ability to run an organization. All of us have personal flaws. All of, none of us are perfect. Some of us have deep wounds from our families, from our past, bad habits, etc. This is just part of being human. When you are in a position of leadership, you are given that position, however, as an opportunity for you to work against those things, to correct those aspects of your life which need that correction. Don't allow yourself, because you're in a position of authority, in other words, to work less on yourself because you can't. People will leave you alone, especially if you scare them off by fear. Don't criticize me. Don't talk bad about me. I'm never going to do a 360. I'm never going to ask my people for feedback. All of that leads me to, to ultimately destroying the organization because the organization will end up mirroring the wounds that are in its leader. If we don't take care of our inadequacies and, and really work against them, our brokenness will have a deleterious effect upon the organization and we'll be responsible for it. And even if it comes to the organization's defeat because of our own fear and our own control and our own uh, inability to fight. And so here you have it in Saul. He does not call himself into question nor allow God to call him into question and therefore he jeopardizes the success of his old organization. Guys, I understand that ego is hard to overcome. I understand that it's a delicate thing and a delicate balance because you don't want to show all kinds of weakness in front of the people that you're leading. I understand all of that. But it is imperative. And we hear this coming right from the word of God. That if you want to lead in, in, as God's leader and work as his instrument in the world, you've got to work on yourself. You cannot pretend that your conversion and the growth of virtue is something that's optional. If we allow vice to grip our hearts and we don't work on our anger, on our fear, on our vanity, on our dependency on other people's opinions, all these different things that are part and parcel of a broken person, then they will have repercussions and undermine the effectiveness of our leadership. If you really, in other words, want to win bad enough, then you start by winning the battle in yourself. Fight for virtue. 
I think that there's nothing, in a sense, there's no greater gift that God could give to somebody than having all of their lack of virtue exposed on a daily basis as a leader. <laughs> because I think that's how all of us feel. You used to think that you were doing just great. People used to think that you were a great person until you became the person in charge of them. And then all of your flaws start coming out. And you see them painfully written in the expressions of the people around you as they suffer from your own personal flaws. It's almost like there is no private, uh, you know, flaws or things in yourself that have no impact on other people. Every part of you that's wrong ends up being shown the moment you start leading. And so you have two things then. You can either accept that and work with it, or you can run away with it, run away from it and deny it the rest of your life. Don't do that. If God's given you authority, it's to make you a saint thereby. And that sanctity comes by embracing the opportunities that we have to work for virtue and to war against our vices. Because otherwise, here's Saul again. And the one thing he's worried about is not that his men died on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. That just drives me crazy. The one thing he should be worried about is the fact, oh my gosh, I'm losing my men. He doesn't even care about his men. Nor is he concerned that Israel lost the battle. What he groans to his armor bearer is that the Philistines are going to run him through, taunt him, and torture him. He's a self-centered person in the end, and he never overcame that. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. He commits suicide, violates God's commandment again. And in his, finishes his days by killing his own self. When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. As another, it's an example. The organization will follow the leader. If you are a leader, war for what is right and fight for your, your personal growth and don't give in to your brokenness. If you do, then your people will fight on their side and the army will advance. If you don't and you give in to your own brokenness, well then as you commit suicide, your people will too. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. And then it even gets worse, of course, because then the Israelites on their side, they fled. The Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. Then they stripped the dead. They hang Saul's body on the city walls. It's just a terrible way for him to die. And he finishes his life that way. The life of King Saul shows us in the end the ravages of a life when cut off from God. We cannot pretend that without God, we can continue to lead in the same way. We who are God's chosen leaders root our lives in God and surrender ourselves to God's ways. And we're stronger than when we try to control it on our own. May God preserve us, give us strength, and help us to follow him by letting go and acknowledging his lordship no matter what. Because in our surrender and in our humility, we are truly strong. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org.
And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.